Uh, in fact, yeah. I'm going to go, we're going to press this button, and theoretically, we are actually, we're here, we're on, on stream, we are live. People can hear our voices. Dominic, can, can, can people in the chat, hello everyone in the chat, can you hear Dominic? Dominic, can, can, hello. You're here, excellent. <laughs> That's good, we're, 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 we're cooking on gas. Um, right. Well, the, the slightly jiggled up format, everyone, means I'm trying to kick things into, trying to reduce the runtime by reducing the amount of time that I can go off on a faff one. So, so um, Dominic is here. You're all here. It seems to be working. Um, without further ado, let's um, let's let's crack on to tonight's um, tonight's episode. Welcome to tonight's Rail Nighter, everyone. City two two five fades away. Oh, we go. Um, we go. Well, we're gonna. We're, we're tonight. We're talking about this fine place, uh, Scandinavia, uh, which is. Well, this isn't just Scandinavia. Scandinavia is not a country. It's not even a particularly well defined. I mean, okay, you can define it by a few countries, but actually, it's, it's weirdly defined. It's like a generic name for a large area. But we'll get to that. We will get to defining what the hell Scandinavia is momentarily. Because first, uh, we must do the news. Um, and we're going to get cracking straight into it. So the, 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 first, the first thing to say is that the um, Transport Select Committee, uh, their report on the integrated rail plan is out, which is quite exciting. Um, it says some very bold things that I really was not expecting. Um, yeah, Dominic, I had my first experience in, in, in the House of Commons giving evidence. So I'd been a few times doing various behind-the-scenes stuff and prodding MPs and, and making a nuisance of myself. This is the first time that I was on Parliament.live, whatever it is, uh, actually making a nuisance of myself in, in kind of on record and in Hansard, or actually, I don't know if it is in Hansard, but it's in the records of the TSA. And it was a, it was all right, actually. Um, I quite enjoyed myself. Uh, it was it was good. And, and what's more important than that is the fact that it, it, it seems to have cut through, because I get quoted 13 times in the, lucky for some, in the, in the report, directly um and lots of the messages that I, i've been drum, banging the drum of cut through and reassuringly are then backed up by all the other what's quite nice is they've led with my quote which is a bit fiery and then they've coming in behind all that is is all the other groups that were giving evidence and and back up what i said so it's really quite a powerful bit of report actually i'm quite pleased i was expecting it to be a, not not necessarily a cop-out but just a bit softer and it's been pretty savage to be honest uh, have you been following the chaos that is the integrated rail plan uh at all i have um a wee bit um and i should i'm not gonna say who it is i have a family member who's actually uh, actually working within within government uh and i get a few cut of choice um choice excerpts from from that um but it's <laughs> it's interesting actually i mean being you know first of all usually i'm based in scotland as you know and that is uh Slightly different discourse around transport, um, and then being over here in in Sweden at the moment, you know, you you look at the UK and you it really just become clear about how dysfunctional some of the the central planning of these really big questions is because not only are these massive twenty thirty year decisions made seemingly on you know um, you know, you know the, the t on a turn of a sixpence, but that um, they're so obviously deeply politicised as yeah, well. Absolutely. Um, and I think you know if you spend any time outside the UK. You come back to the UK, you get, you see this. This is valid for so much, not just transport. Um, and you know, again, like living in Scotland, a lot of the discussions about high-speed rail seem completely academic anyway, because it's just a little benefit um, if you live in yeah. Edinburgh or Glasgow. Absolutely, yeah. It's 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 
it's deeply frustrating. And I, and I, I think we'll come to this in, later in the episode, actually. It's kind of, kind of relevant to, to the way that decision-making is made in, in, in Sweden and in other parts of Scandinavia that I think we'll, we'll touch back on. So we'll, we'll, we'll store that one up and, and release it momentarily, folks, in the chat. Um, but uh, yes, there is going to be a page turn on this one. Um, the, 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 there's, there are quite a lot of very juicy quotes. I thought I'd pull this one out, which is fun. Uh, paragraph 87. Journey time reductions, albeit not to the same degree as promised by previous plans, are a headline benefit of the integrated rail plan. We received detailed evidence that cast doubt on the plausibility of the times achievable under the new plans. We asked the government to publish its full technical appraisals of the feasibility of these reductions so that communities and stakeholders can have confidence that they are achievable in practice. Um, that's select committee speak for... Um, you're speaking bollocks, government, and a lot of very clever people have just told us you are, and we're unconvinced that you're not speaking bollocks. So, uh, yeah, that, that's quite. I was quite pleased about that, particularly as they're, they're referenced. Anyway, yeah, well, there will be a page turn, folks. You're asking the chat, everyone in the chat. Yes, there will be a page turn, and it and Dave, it does mention Manchester Underground Station. I was I wrote a thread this morning, which my weirdly mis like misbehaving Twitter app on my phone uh, just deleted. So I thought oh, I can't write that again. I hate writing threads twice. Um, I'll, I'll just do a summary tweet, and, and I'll come back to it in a future real now. Anyway. And for that oh god uh yeah my face i forgot i'd done this this is a bit of a holding picture and i was trying to find another one but anyway uh, yeah i was on the news talking about the strikes because the strikes have just happened oh i was gonna put <laughs> i was gonna put a picture of the the the, the actual crew who were yeah, i'm gonna do this right now uh because i can uh where is it the, this this lovely lot yeah here they are uh look it's 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 this lot there I, I went and took a selfie this morning with the crew and bought them a load of cookies that are in the bottom corner you can see the cookies down there it's very nice isn't it anyway uh yeah i got them some breakfast because uh the, the, everyone's out striking again uh and there's lots we can discuss about this and i think we're going to get into trade unionism a bit as well uh dominic aren't we so we'll kind of get to that but if yeah, yeah. i did a video this video is on youtube people can go and watch it I, I, I clipped my bbc news appearance to talk about that and then obviously labor the leader of the opposition uh, office, the office of the leader of the opposition, had to take the stupidest approach possible, which is to, right at the point where the strikes are increasingly cutting through, um, they had to make the story about themselves again, uh, which was by uh, sacking a shadow transport minister who had backed the rail strikes. Just mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. It's not 3D chess, folks. It's incompetence. Anyway. <sighs> Breathe. Uh, anyway, right. Enough of that. Dominic, let's talk about Scandinavia. <laughs> let's talk about oh. Scandinavia. Oh, let's get our wee faces up as well. In fact, before we do that, though, before we do that, Dominic, Dominic, hello. People can see you. I'm oh. incredibly pink because it's so roasting here. Uh, your, yeah. your camera's fine, actually. Everyone, before the, before this, Dominic was 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 apologising for the state of the camera. Dom, your, your camera's fine. It's absolutely It'll fine. do. It'll do. Um, um, Dominic, tell tell everyone who you are and uh, introduce yourself uh, to the, the Rail Natter audience. So... I am, uh, anybody who follows me on Twitter will, will know I'm a sociologist. I teach sociology of media and journalism at uh, University of Glasgow in Scotland. Um, but I'm also a journalist going back um, 15 years, basically, and worked quite a long time in Germany, but mostly in Scandinavia, um, working out of Stockholm, but covering all of Scandinavia. Um, and you may be wondering why I'm here on a railway podcast um the story is long but it's actually quite it's actually it's like some story. other stuff so story i came to sweden for the first time because my dad is a rolling stock engineer or he was he's retired now um and uh back in the late 90s when everybody was deregulating and everything um the bit of british rail that he worked for got bought by somebody who then 
seconded him to come and work in Sweden for a bit of a Swedish railway they were contracted to run. So I pitched up here, uh, 14 years old, not knowing my ass from my elbow, and thought it was quite nice. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was that. And then when I was, I'd always wanted to be a journalist, but um, I went to uni. Turns out I went to uni at the same time as Gareth, but we never actually met each other face to face, just what, you know, like ships in the night. Yeah. Um, and uh, I ended up becoming a specialist in uh, Northern Europe, basically. Um, but the best thing is, is that because journalism involves a lot of travel, you get to spend a lot of time on trains. So involuntarily, or I would say semi-voluntarily, I've ended up becoming a kind of expert on Nordic rail travel just by the fact that I've taken probably most trains that you can take in the Nordic countries at some point. Um, and I'm right now here in Stockholm um, doing a bit of work, and it seemed like an opportune time to talk about Nordic Railways. Absolutely. Yeah, we've been talking on and off about doing this um, for, for ages now, you know, doing some sort of collaboration and doing a, a rail now for ages. And this, as you say, this kind of feels like everything's neatly fallen into place for you to, to sort of, um, now that you're back back over there and, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is really the zenith of my career. It's all downhill after this, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, you know. no, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. I've, I've, I've no idea what the destiny of, of Railnet is. At some point, it might, it might uh, choke, but it hasn't yet. I've done one every single week since I started doing it without fail. I, uh, I hope you get optioned by Radio Four. This is the kind of nice afternoon content we need on a Sunday. Oh, I get too um, excited. I get too, ex- too pink and excitable for Radio Four. I, I think I'd, I, maybe, maybe Radio Five will have me. Who knows? But uh, yeah. Anyway, right. We must. It? We must. Uh, we, we'll get lost otherwise. Let's return to Scandinavia. And ask the question: uh, What is a, a Scandinavia? <laughs> what is it? Uh, what is a Scandinavia? Yeah, what, what is, is it? Sweden? Yeah. What, what, well, yeah. Actually, I better get my John Maddening out. Let's get the let's get the old pen. But um, yeah, here is here is a, a small and slightly weirdly laid out uh, map of uh, of 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 Scandinavia. It, it consists of a few countries. Do, Dominic, what, what, how would you describe Scandinavia? And is Scandinavia an annoying term for people from uh, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, and also Finland that isn't highlighted here that sometimes yeah, gets wrapped it kind, in? Yeah, it kind Iceland, of is because technically Scandinavia is a is a kind of cultural unit, so it's it's really to do with languages. Um, and as as uh, listeners will probably know, Denmark and Norway and Sweden share what are essentially um, all dialects of the same core language. Um, and to an extent that also extends out to Iceland and the Faroe Islands, although those split off a long time ago linguistically. Um, Finland is part of the Nordic countries, but they're very, very keen to tell you that they're not Scandinavian, and that's because Finnish culture and Finnish, uh, well, I won't, won't be that reductive, but Finnish language is very different. As Gareth has just pointed out there, drawing the route of the soon-to-maybe-be-built Estonia-Helsinki <laughs> tunnel, yes. um, Finland and Estonia... Estonian, Finnish and Estonian are quite similar. Um, but then you kind of get into the uh, what in Sweden they're called Balticum, so the, the, the Baltic states as well. And actually, rather than talk about Scandinavia as a whole, you can really see it as a kind of series of continuums, that, or continua, sorry, that flow into one another. Um, so there's quite a big difference between like Finland and Iceland. But then, you know, between Denmark and Norway and the Atlantic Scandinavian states, there's quite a lot of going on. Mm. Um, however, Iceland and Faroe Islands don't have any railways in, so for the purposes of this podcast, they're completely useless. They're gone. Um, they're off the case. We're going to talk. We're going to talk about the real deal, <laughs> which is the uh, the mainland Scandinavian Nordic countries. Um, but also, I mean, the, if you want to understand the history of Scandinavia and particularly Sweden or the modern history, railways are quite a good way to go about it, as mm. we'll come on to. Um, oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. But you know, 
whenever some people talk about Scandinavia, I think they've got specific preconceptions. And I would say this because I'm a specialist, but like every area of the world, you know, it's much more diverse and actually much more complex. And there's much more dif- there's much more difference between each bit than you might expect. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's really. Um, I mean, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book about Sweden, uh, moderately well-selling, um, critically noticed book. Um, and um, you know, I, t- so I tried to do that in the book, basically, to talk a lot about what people's preconceptions are mm. about Sweden in particular, but Scandinavia more generally, and just really show that they're quite normal places. Yeah. But the, you know, I mean, like, there's nothing special about Swedish people or any other kind of Scandinavian. But that, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that people like about the Nordic countries is the result of actually quite kind of banal everyday decisions. It's not high politics necessarily. Um, and it's not down to hygge or lifestyle or having candles and cakes either. <laughs> I, I went to Sweden and the food was excellent. Uh, I didn't get a chance to explore Stockholm properly because I was being whisked around on a press tour. Uh, mm. And But but we did, I did briefly get fika on uh, around, where, where would it have been? Probably around about... Uh, Possibly here, possibly yeah. somewhere here. I can't exactly remember. Yeah. I know that it was like an hour and a half north of uh, Stockholm. Um, yeah. Uh, in any case, yeah, my Stockholm job for you ain't, ain't great. Uh, was that was that at the railway museum? Oh no, maybe it's further. No, it wasn't. It was right the way up. Actually, maybe it was much further north because this map's a bit confusing. So, and actually, I've got confused where Stockholm is. So actually, maybe quite a lot further north. It was. Uh, it was. Sorry, anybody's on. listening and every anybody's listening and wants to go to the Swedish railway museum. Oh, it's yeah. in a town called Jävla. Um, oh, it was yeah. Yevla is Yevlabora is where I went to. Uh, so yes, it yeah. was not that town, but it was that area. Yevla is like yeah. up here on the coast, isn't it? It's like up somewhere. Yeah. I, I, this map's squished and it's confusing. It's just about where you. Put, it's just about where you put your first circle. This but one here. The, that's the Yevla. thing about Sweden is that it's weird because some places seem really far away because the transport's bad, and some places <laughs> seem really near. Um, also and also, map, also like, map projection is is stupid for yeah. this part of the world as well. Yeah. So um, the the map of Sweden you've got here actually makes Stockholm look like it's a long way up, and it's not. Um, the northern Sweden is massive, so mm. the distance from the top of Sweden to the bottom of Sweden is like driving from London to Rome. Um, oh, yeah. It's about it's about fourteen hundred kilometers, and it's really interesting to see that. You know, people people come to Sweden. They think they're going out in the wilderness because they've gone an hour yeah. outside of Stockholm. <laughs> yeah, like if yeah. you want to experience wild, you know, landscapes in Europe, go to northern Sweden because it is empty and it's beautiful, and you can get a train directly there. Mm, yeah, and the trains are, as we will discuss. Oh, in fact, no. Are they good? Or are they not good? Let's let us move on to talk about the the, the infrastructure because we're this it's theoretically a railway podcast, Dominic. Yes. What is this, and why should people? In fact, people watch viewers of uh, the architecture of the railways built should recognise this actually. But um, Dominic, tell us about this um, interesting. This is this icon. is the this is the antiquated. I think this is from the fifties, um, and this is this is the symbol for for um, SE, so um, the Swedish State Railway Company, and. Um, I basically uh, I chose this image partly because it's kind of harks back to the golden age of rail travel. Um, but also because the in Sweden, like the the state and you know the crown and the um, the infrastructure has been very heavily linked, so that mm. the state was a really big, um, really big factor in opening up um, large parts of Sweden, which you know until twentieth century was like a big remote inaccessible country, um, and the 
the railways just transformed Sweden because suddenly it meant that all of the kind of industrial uh, stuff that was out there could be accessed. Um, and if you go to um, any of the kind of so, so Sweden doesn't really have steam railways like you do in the UK. Um, and it would be fair to say people's train interest is a bit lower. But if you go <laughs> yeah. to a lot of the kind of railways, um, what they do in Sweden a lot of the time, they get kind of really lightly used railway lines or, or um, semi-disused ones, and they run trains on them at the weekends just as a kind of hobby thing. Um, and if you go to one of those, you'll definitely see this shade of orange, and you'll definitely see this symbol. So I think it, it encapsulates a very specific kind of ideal about sort of 1950 Sweden as well. Mm -hmm. Um, which is very powerful. And even today, people kind of hark back to that time as a golden age in terms of kind of what the country was, what it was doing, um, and when everything worked. Now, that, that's not the case. We know that's not the case. It, it can't possibly be so. Um, but I think one of the things that's really strong in Sweden today is, is the idea that at some point in the mid-20th century, it kind of peaked, um, and that a lot of politics a lot, and a lot of kind of discussion is about going back to that, trying to recreate that in some form. That sounds um, so it's, familiar yeah. somehow. Yeah, yeah, I know it's it's weird, isn't it? Um, and uh, it's it's sort of weaponized nostalgia. And previously, it was quite harmless. But what we've seen, what we've seen in the last sort of ten years in Sweden, is an increasing kind of like um, almost British style, you know, uh, national conservatism, um, which is which has grown. Um, and it's funny because um, the I've got a kind of insider outsider perspective in Sweden. I mean, I'm not Swedish. Um, but you really kind of see the aesthetics of it all as well. Um, and the other thing I should say about Sweden is there's this kind of idea that it's the most modern country in the world. And this is a this is a uh, an idea that's been around since since the well, since the 20s, really, maybe even earlier. Um, so this becomes a kind of self-sustaining prophecy in people, Swedish public life. Um, and you quite often hear people say that Sweden is, you know, at, at the forefront of technology and modernity and everything else, which is one of the reasons why this podcast was called Railways and Modernity in Scandinavia, mm. because you can't really separate the two. Um, and it's it's I think if you're going to if you're going to get on a train in Sweden today, it's really interesting to think about kind of what the what the actual kind of um, semiotics of that are as well. It's interesting. I mean, it's it's interesting to see. Firstly, it's interesting to see how the attitudes towards a country reflect onto a country, because that that's something that I I don't know if that does happen in the UK quite as much. Because I think we're, uh, you know, I think there's such a, a lack of looking outwards that <laughs> perhaps happens in the the general psyche. But 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 it's interesting that it happens in Sweden because there's that there is that view. There's that view across huge right across the political spectrum actually from leftists right the way across to people on the right who have this vision of what Sweden is and, and, and can achieve. It is, it is interesting. This is also a very nice orange. Uh, it is. <laughs> it's, it's good. It is very nice. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. And, so, uh, and it's interesting you talk about the way that the railways built up as well, and maybe we'll touch on this yeah. momentarily, but it's interesting that you talk about the way that, that unlike uh, Britain, unlike you know England, Wales, and Scotland, where the, the network was entirely private enterprise and chaos and zero strategic view was it the case that there was a complete strategic view of railway construction in sweden or was there just a, a much stronger intervention uh you know were there still duplications and, and and bad choices or was it an entirely strategically laid out rail network there, there were there were plenty of bad choices i mean even today like some of the some of the the routes through sweden the long distance routes are really really dysfunctional because they were made 
first and foremost to carry military traffic in the event of invasion. Um, so they were set back from the coasts, and ah. that was a mistake. That was the mistake that took Sweden a long time to correct. So mm. for years, for example, if you got the train up to the far north of Sweden, you take this really, really long and winding route. And so although it wasn't that far, you could only get the night trains because the day trains would have taken about 12 hours. Ah, yeah. um, and what basically happened is that um, as, as you get in lots of European countries, um, the state progressively took over more and more of the railway operators until it owned everything, really. Um, there are very few places in Sweden, to my knowledge, um, that had, you know, private railways that, that ran for a long time, mm. you know, a couple of mineral, mineral lines, stuff like that. But I think one in a country like this, where you've got relatively few cities, big distances, it's very, very hard to run uh, railways in a commercially viable way on an individual basis anyway. So the only way to make money or to not lose loads of money is to look, basically club together and have a national organization that cross-subsidizes, um, much like in Scotland, actually, you know, where yeah. there's only a couple of routes where it's possible to actually make a profit. And the, you know, the political conversation in Scotland accepts implicitly that you know we are going to have to subsidize trains if, if we want to have them um and it's very much similar here i mean you've got huge tracts of the country that would be inaccessible without the railways um whilst at the same time there isn't a hope in hell that those railways will ever break even yep yeah, it's interesting to come. Right, first, Lin Man Fu. I am going to audio describe this logo. You're right. I should do that, and I'll do it in great detail. Dominic and I will both do it momentarily. But yes. just to pick on just to pick up on the last point there, um, it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting how that does not propagate in England. Wales get it, Scotland no. get it. I don't think. Okay, lots of people obviously it does, but I think generally the political discussion is still a lot of people see the railways as being a private. Entity. I don't know if that harks back to kind of that that um, the damaging nostalgia view of, of of individual railway companies and 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 that being yeah it's interesting to unpick but we're not here to unpick I, it's always interesting to hold a mirror up and, and and use other countries as a lens to look back um, at the UK but we're not going to do much more of that we are going to already describe this logo though so to start with in the centre of this wonderful gold it, it kind of embossed uh, logo it looks like a you know a piece of brass or or a kind of painted yeah. gold painted metal and set onto a, a bit of st- a bit of nicely orange painted steel. Um, there, there is a gold uh, crown uh, sat on top of a, a kind of hovering actually above what I can only describe as a a winged railway wheel. What what looks yeah, like it, quite a nice conicity rail wheel uh, with wings coming out of its axle uh, it's either side. Basically, it's a wheel that's flying and it's also a king. So it's um yeah. <laughs> what it, what is there not similar- to like? Yeah, it's, it's, it's similar to the one that if you go to the central station in Copenhagen, there's a very similar symbol that the Copenhagen railways, uh, sorry, the Danish railways mm. had um, as part of this kind of high modernism, uh, you know, of like speed and steel and steam. Although in, in Sweden, it was electric and diesel. But yeah. um, it's very it's quite sexy, actually. And I think, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about kind of the aesthetics of modernity, um, you can really tell a story about where society was based on, you know, looking at the trains at the time mm-hmm. um, and how they were designed because they were they were designed as an integral part of this kind of industrial project that was going to make people's lives better and revolutionise the country. Yeah, and it's worth saying that the aesthetic of this is a mixture because there's a mixture of the of the craft of the the, the crown is quite detailed and that, but all, but the, the wings, the shape of the wings. I, I mean, I, I suppose the easiest way to visually to, to describe it is that there is a there is something of a socialist aesthetic actually 
even though this very much was not really necessarily a, a socialist organization, there is an element of that that Soviet-esque Im- mm. imagery of the wings and the, and actually you see interestingly you see quite a lot of that in 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 the UK in the in the in the 1920s and 30s you see some of this, yeah. this style of art i'm not a good enough art person to be able to say what that style you, no, is you're actually. totally right though i mean if you go and look at um a couple of years ago i was at the nasarello museum with a family and um it's just if anyone listens is from a railway family they'll know that that's just something that you do mm. every so often absolutely um the whole family goes goes somewhere um a segue but after my brother's wedding ever the whole family decamped to the illinois railway museum in chicago just because <laughs> Um, this was literally the day after he got married. He has a lot of tolerance. Um, and uh, it's America's biggest Derella museum, they tell me, Father. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's a good day out. But um, it's... Um, the Wings the, on Coronation the, Scott look like this. Is one yeah, thing. exactly. They had this amazing exhibition on, uh, on 30s modernism and uh, streamlining and design. Uh, which is what the NRM does so well, actually. You know, people think it's just a big hall with trains in. It's not. It's it's an amazing social uh, record, you know, of what's going on yeah. uh, throughout the 20th century, really. Um, and it's the same here. And, you know, in, you know, one of the things that Sweden's famous for is design and technology. And you really see it as kind of embodied modernism, which um, gets a bit lost in the UK for a couple of reasons. Um but, you know, things look futuristic as well. And there's an attempt to make them seem futuristic. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So from this grand uh, edifice, or rather a logo on a, on a train, we uh, we head to ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only we've got this picture just because when I say to people that in the 1970s, British Rail recruited ABBA, who at the time were one of the biggest selling bands in the world, to front uh, keep Britain tidy or keep your station tidy campaign. Nobody believes you. So you have to show them the picture, um, you know, to make it seem seem um, legit. Why? And I think the only reason that Abra agreed to this is because Britain has such a weirdly, uh, Britain's kind of placed on a strange cultural pedestal in Sweden. So, you know, to be invited by the UK national rail operator to endorse a cleaning campaign was probably quite a big deal for them. Yeah, and and this this very much for anyone who listens to Trash Future, which is a lot of the listeners. Oh my God, this sums up so much. Like Britain is basically all about the bins. Uh, it just just yeah. continues to build on that ethos. But anyway, there we go. Abba, keeping Britain tidy. Wild. Anyway, um, right. This is what some yeah. of the people came now we get for. To, now we get to the good stuff. Yeah, this is where we start rubbing our thighs, which is looking at a an a, a, an ancient bit of electrification, a very snazzy. Um, uh, bit of rolling stock and, and some mm. quite nice uh, scenery if if you're into kind of the mass nordic forestry style um yeah which uh, i would which, say yeah. if you don't like trees and lakes sweden is not the country for yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. um because that's all we've got um so this is this is this is the um the x2000 so the x42 some the the swedish high-speed train um and it's it's interesting i i noticed that you know in your, in your intro there you've got pictures of the um the East Coast, uh, the Class 92, yeah. and the um, ATP, both of which actually share technology with these um, trains. Because um, yep. these were built by um, uh, ASEA, which became ABB, um, which everyone will know. It's a really big Swedish um, um, technology company. Um, but the, the some of the tech that's in them for the, for the tilting was actually developed by 
British Rail um, in Derby, uh, which is another another connection um, that's yeah, unexpected yeah. between my family and and Sweden. Um, but these these trains were introduced in the early 1990s, and in like in a lot of places, it, by the early 90s, the railways in Sweden were at quite a low ebb. Um, they were being beaten on price and time by um, domestic flights. People were driving. The motorway network had improved. It was a familiar story. Yeah. And so SJ, who at that time, they were still owned by the government, but they were really told they needed to buck their ideas up. So they, they, they came up with the idea of, of this kind of plane on, um, plane on wheels. And they wanted to offer airline-style service and, to an extent, passenger times. Um, to your average kind of big city, uh, to big city and city commuter. And so they came up with this, which was quite remarkable. It was completely, bearing in mind Sweden at that time only had 9 million people in. So this isn't Germany, this isn't France, this is quite a small country. Yeah. They came up with their own high-speed train and they developed it from scratch, pretty much. Um, and it tilts. So Sweden um, has some quite windy uh, railways and they couldn't afford to build new lines. So what they did is they just decided to speed everything up. Um, and it was a huge success. It basically saved SJ um, and got people taking trains again, um, rescued their image. But these things are still in service today. I mean, they're all, um, yeah, they're, they're 30 years old now, um, but they don't look it. And they've just been refurbished and completely redone. Um, and I was on one the other day, actually, coming up to Stockholm, one of the new ones. And they're, they're really beautiful inside. Um, it, they're interesting for me because they are kind of a there's a lot of pride in Sweden about Swedish technology, um, Swedish products, um, you know, Swedish design as well. And the X2000 embodied that. Um, and I was speaking to a colleague of mine who was kind of quite young, um, like I was in the early 90s. And, you know, they remember them being launched and they were this kind of really big deal. Um, and you know, they're, they're one of these things where actually, if you say the words X2000, it's a bit like saying Intercity 125 in the UK. Yeah. Even people who've got no interest in the railways would be like, oh yeah, I know what that is. They know what that is, exactly. It's an iconic, yeah. it's an iconic name. It's an image that people recognise. Um, it's nice because they are contemporary. They are essentially contemporaries of the, of the, of the Intercity 225, of the, of the, they are. Of the Class 9. So there is technology in, the, there. you know, the, the, the Class 91 has quite a lot of ABB kit in it. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of, uh, and, and as you say, the tilting is Derby origin. You know, there's uh, there's yeah. people in the chat saying there's basically two, there there are basically two types of tilting tech that currently operate in the world. One of them is Talgo's weird mechanical doodad, and the other is Derby origin. You know, and and yeah. and, and that then went back to Italy, went across to Sweden, um, and and everyone else used it, and we uh, then bought it later. <laughs> But that's another story. As is, as is, as, as is our wants. As is our style. Um, um, yeah, and it's yeah. And it is an iconic bit of kit, um, and and it's it's interesting that it's that it's that it's a similar story. You know, it's a, a small country can't afford new high speed uh, rail, so they, um, I suppose, they benefit in in ways that the UK is is different. You know, we the the, the lack of density helps because you mm. don't necessarily have as many of the challenges with suburban services that, um, that mixing on the existing lines that, that these have to deal with. Um, they do have to deal with freight, but freight is a little bit easier to deal with because you can you can kind of put it onto a passing loop, which isn't the same for a suburban yeah. service. So there are benefits that, that allow this to work better. But but it's a similar story. There are a lot of upgrades, as you say, in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, I think, wasn't it, that uh, there are a lot of upgrades to basically bring a lot of the railways up to about the same as we have. So there are 200 kilometre an hour 
um, sort of line speeds uh, in, in lots of places, which is, I think is about as fast as these get, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think they're designed to go... Um, they're designed to operate usually at between sort of 120 and 180 kilometers an hour, sometimes yeah. a bit higher. Um, they can go... There's a couple of new bits of railway in Sweden um, that are usually quite short, like 20, 30 miles long each, where they can go faster. But um, the real problem is... Uh, well, I'm not an expert on this. From what I understand, is the signaling. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So the fastest bit of railway in Sweden uh, is probably the bit actually in the north of Sweden, which is brand new, um, yeah. where it is, um, you know, because the distances are so big. And we'll go on to this as well. But they just okay, built yeah. a high-speed railway through a really rural area because they could, and it cost a ton of money, but it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's one. We'll, we'll get there. We will get there, though. So this is a, a lovely scene. We're going to jump to another image, though. Why, why is this wagon in the air? Tell us about it. What's going uh, on here? It's in the air because this is this is um, so this is going back to about academic stuff. Mm. There is an academic who sadly passed away a few years ago, an American geographer called Alan Pred, and he's probably the the foremost writer on Sweden and modernity. So he wrote a, re- wrote a really good um, book called Montages of the Present, which is about the way that Sweden's constantly reinvented itself to um, to appear modern and has had at various points throughout the 20th century, these big exhibitions where people from around the world were invited to Sweden to see Swedish technology, Swedish housing, look at the social innovations. This is a um, this is a, a carriage without wheels, as you can tell. The reason it's, it's not on wheels is it's actually mounted above an exhibition floor. Um, it's been cut off, but there's actually, I think, a bus underneath it. And oh, this yeah, is in one see. of the pavilions at the Stockholm exhibition in... Um, I think this is from the from the um, early 30s. This one, yeah. um, and at the time, this would have, you know this this steel-bodied um, coach would have been state of the art. Yes, um, I see. Yeah. And it's actually it's actually a sleeping wagon, so a sleeping coach. I don't know if you can see it. Um, and I think I'm right in saying it's actually only half a coach, and they've chopped the other half off. Oh, okay. I was going to say it's quite stubby for a for a coach. Yeah, you know, the but actually, this end is, is they've lopped the they've um, lopped the end off. Yeah, and is you know this is this is kind of for me typifies a lot of what is um you see a lot of the time in sweden which is this real literally in this case literally putting technology on a pedestal um yeah and then trying to sell it to people um but it was also kind of a golden age you know where this is this is pre-war so this is the golden age of european cosmopolitanism where you can um you know go to the railway station and get on an express which links up with the ferry so you can go to Copenhagen you can go to Berlin you can get a train that connects with the boat to go to St Petersburg you know um there is there is a a real it's not available to everybody but there's a real kind of sexiness to um international travel and to rail travel as well because it's the thing that links everything together at, 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 well that time we're completely unprecedented speeds yeah and i think if you look at the history of history of you know transport more generally we often forget because we've become so desensitized to it today that even going into the 20s and 30s you know being able to get from london to edinburgh in seven hours was a revelation um compared to how it had been 20 years before so you know we complain about how trains haven't really got better since the 80s um which is true in some ways but the rate of technological change was so high between kind of you know 1880s and the 1930s, that um, a lot of this would have been unrecognisable. And you know, I'm a I'm a sociologist in modernity loosely. That's one of my things I'm interested in. 
modernity is like a concertina. Sometimes it's stretched out. Sometimes it's very condensed and quick. That's interesting. Um, Yeah. And one of the things you see about this period is that things are happening very quickly. You know, the future's coming at you very quickly. Um, And largely it's a positive thing. You know, until the Second World War comes along, people are feeling pretty good about stuff. Um, You know, I know there's a recession, but even so, modernism carries on. And Sweden also, um, I wouldn't say it sits out the Second World War, but one of the reasons reasons (laughs) Sweden ends up being so rich is that it comes through the Second World War as virtually the only country in Western Europe to have a developed industrial economy that's completely intact. Um, And, you know, they they make hay. The 50s is, is the golden age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um yeah it's in, I don't I mean there's plenty to unpick in that one sentence of course but but I think that's for for another time but it's it's this image for me captures a lot about something that again and I'm bring bring it back to the UK it's something that we just aren't good at anymore we aren't good at you know government leaves it to private enterprise to go and sell itself and, and you know we have the made in what's fun is we used to have made in great britain or or great there's like a great britain campaign and someone has finally pointed out to to whichever branch of government that is that runs that that it completely ignores northern ireland which is also part of this country theoretically Mm -hmm. Uh, and so they've changed it to great britain and northern ireland and the the whole thing doesn't work very well but anyway there is so little done by to, to kind of actually talk about what is good what are the good things uh, you know it's cannot see you know the government cannot see what's right in front of its nose about what is good and what it can sell and what what is exciting mm. um and it's left to industries to do it and and you don't get these sorts of publicly available sort of exhibitions like you used to we used to send stuff out you know even british rail had had sent their trains to the continent you know to yeah um when we were um, still proud of stuff that we did it. on the railways when i was a kid maybe i remember reading in one of the railway magazines my dad used to get um the you know, there was a, they'd sent sprinter trains to um, Germany for an yeah. exhibition or Netherlands, maybe, you know, because yep. they were, Germany, that, that yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they were leading. And um, I think one of the things as well is that if you look at the way that the Nordic economies work, they're not perfect. And there have been the same problems with overseas buyers coming in and, you know, stuff being offshored. But there's still some industries which are basically national champions. So mm. if we, if we look at renewable energy, for example, in Denmark, the Danish government has, allowed a couple of big companies to basically become world leaders and it actively facilitated them doing so on the understanding that by and large they will kind of be loyal to Denmark um, and that's why you know Denmark makes so much money of renewable energy in terms of both generation and export of mm. technology yeah. whereas Scotland which is you know has lots of wind farms has virtually no um domestic actors who are making wind turbines and yeah. developing tech and you know exporting that because it's something that just hasn't been supported over the past 30 years yeah. and you know this isn't just a uk government problem this is a scottish government problem as well and i think that the scotland's uh scotland's very big on nostalgia of actually about its industrial past um it's very hard to shift the conversation into kind of well okay what does you know a, a well-designed heavy industrial high-tech economy look like and how do we get there and yep. you know Dem- denmark is an example of that but sweden does it very well as well yeah, yeah. um it is it is still today an industrial and technological powerhouse even if it doesn't make so much anymore it still engineers a lot absolutely and it's interesting i mean you know grew up in uh grew up around aberdeen and that for me embodies you know the trajectory of aberdeen now absolutely embodies the lack of any vision in scotland for what 
a mm. high tech but but also high industry economy might look like um you know scotland could lead the world in tidal energy and i just don't see i just see a lot of let the universities run it and very little interest yeah. from government to actually champion it because you cannot if you want something to thrive you can't just leave the, the universities only have so much cash and they have even less cash now they are not going to be able to turn something there are going to be very few moments where something jumps from university to to reality um out yeah. there. And it, it needs government to get behind it and champion it absolutely totally. yeah, um i'm at glasgow uni i'm part of the um interestingly titled infrastructure reading group and it's basically a group of us who are interested in broad questions of infrastructure and society and we get together um, and we talk about stuff which is great and that's what universities are really good for um, but we've we've done a lot of, of critical discussion of what's going on in in scotland and so much of it's just vibes um, yeah. you know there's yeah. there's no real sense of a project um, i think it's partly because you know in the, in the kind of contemporary political space in the uk which in some ways is extremely post-political i mean if you look at you know Keir Starmer, for example He's somebody who thinks that to be acceptable in politics, you essentially have to not have any politics. Yeah. But as soon as as soon as you lose the connection to any kind of material reality in terms of what needs to be done, it's really hard to make big decisions about where the country's going. Um, and uh, I think I think that that is you know in Scotland something the SNP have had to deal with as well is that they've they've been really good at projecting kind of broad ideas, broad values but when it comes to actually making big decisions and you know taking the economy forward or taking you know industry somewhere it hasn't really happened yeah and all um, too often they've fallen back on some of their older ideals about you know pro car and, <laughs> and all this oh, stuff oh absolutely yeah yeah um and this is why i mean this is why i don't want to don't want to digress too much but like during the cop in glasgow when the scottish government was doing a big kind of pr um campaign to make itself look great you looked around and you're like, well, actually, very few of the things being profiled here are anything directly to do with the government or with economic policy. And so much of it works against it. Um, you know, one of the refreshing things about being back in Sweden is that you can go to the end of the street and get on a bus that will take you to the metro station that will take you into town yeah. and not think twice about it. Yeah. And I mean, Swedes, together with you know, the Dutch, are like this as well. They're quite spoiled and they don't even realize it because this is not how it is in most countries. Yeah. But the UK, I think, is particularly bad at this mm. and understanding that these kind of like measures which are nominally, you know, environmental also just make your life much better as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is that is something which you just don't see mentioned in the UK. Yeah, it's it's oh, so much to unpick. I knew this would be a good one, Dominic. I knew it'd be a good one. Right. Let us go to uh, apologies for the slight rationing of pixels, but I think this is nice and clear. Everyone fuzz up your eyes yeah. a little bit; it's fine. Tell us about what we can see, because I see some modern things in a black and white photo here. I see, I see lots of newly built concrete. I see yeah. slab track. I see a, a suburban train. Tell me what's going on. So this is this is from the fifties, uh, late fifties, um, and I dug I dug this out because I was down the other day in in a suburb in southern Stockholm called Bandhagen, where a friend of mine lives, and it's a kind of beautifully preserved nineteen fifties model suburb. What yeah, happened? There's in social Sweden. housing in the background as well, by the look of it. So yeah, it's social housing. So, um, but Sweden doesn't have council housing like in the UK. So mm. instead of the council building stuff, you have these large housing organisations that build. Um, they're basically a lot of them are cooperatives. Some of them make money, but they build housing and the government kind of facilitates it. And then you know you get your rental contract and you pay in. And um, in fact, the flat I'm in right now, which belongs to belongs to a colleague, is. Um, is one of those. This one's, I think, from from the late '60s, but very similar vibe, like really well built, mm. um, affordable at that point. Anyway, um, 
but what happened in Stockholm in the 50s is that the, the Social Democrats got into government in the 30s. They didn't come out of government until the mid 70s. Um, and that was only for a couple of very short parliaments. So essentially, they were in power for four decades. Um, and or four and a half decades. That meant that they could push through big projects that a UK Labour government's never been able to do in terms of, um, you know, large scale social reform. It happened in other places in Sweden, but in Stockholm, what happened from a fairly early stage in the 50s onwards was they just built loads and loads of really high quality new build housing in these kind of little pockets in the woods, basically, <laughs> and connected it all up with this, at the time, revolutionary brand new metro system. Now, in some ways, it's quite Soviet, right? You know, we've seen, you look at the metros in all these random cities in Russia that were built in the 50s and 60s. Um, it's a very similar vibe. But because it was, you know, social democratic rather than communist, it was a little bit more kind of lifestyle based as well. So these these um, housing areas have like really lovely little arcades and they've got, um, you know, um, all the facilities you could want. But, you know, you can also go out, um, go out to the shops or go into town and do whatever you want to do. Um, and the the Stockholm as it is today would not exist without this metro system, mm. which was really like a massive piece of social engineering. And um, I think if you if you sort of go to these suburbs, you'll see that pretty much everyone the metro station is at the centre, and you'll come out of the metro station into your main square or onto your high street, which was built that way. Um, but unlike you know, you look at something like um, the Metropolitan Line in um, London, which was built originally as a kind of way to facilitate um, land sales, you know, to developing suburbs in many ways. Um, it's the same kind of outcome, but a very different uh, motivation. And as a result, the communities that grow up around them are quite different as well. Um, there's been some problems. So where I live today, where I am right now, um, this is on the Red Line, which is like Western Stockholm. That was built a bit later in the 70s and so the um or the 60s and 70s so the housing blocks out here are bigger and a bit more brutalist and they've had more social problems and stuff but these original suburbs on the south side of stockholm or the northwest side of stockholm have become really bougie nowadays oh, yeah, um, yeah. and are really really nice places to live um but also i mean stockholmers they love their transport so yeah. you know the the thing that will really sink it for you if you get elected here um, the thing that will really sink it for you in terms of people's everyday lives is if, is if you mess up the metro system or the trams or the buses. And it's 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 a I mean if I'm gonna I'm just inserted a slide casually while you're talking, kind of describing the story to remind people kind yes. of what the Stockholm. So I've travelled on the on the Stockholm metro, and it is amazing. It is just glorious, yeah. and it's it's very much like it's it's very much and a crossrail achieved this to an extent although you know in comparison in a little more of a, a, mm. a of a of a kind of a sterile way but um the Stockholm metro is it's not just a transport system it, it, it's it's showing it's it, by its design by its attitude and i think this is a bigger yeah. picture thing in, in in sweden as well but correct me on this is that the public transport system certainly in, in terms of the metro is part of the beating heart of the city it's it's seen as, as 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 like, and the underground in London I think is part of that. People see it as part of the art, you know, art on the yeah. underground and these things. That tra public transport is not just a transport system. It has to be. It should look good. It should feel good. Yeah. People and should it's, feel it's happy and proud. Either. It's not. It's not an option for those who can't drive. You know, it's the primary mode of of transport. Yeah. Um. What you've actually in that picture you put in there? That's one of my dad's trains. So I'll be very happy about oh, that. Oh, nice. Um, 
this I think they're called C thirties. I have to chill double check, but um, <laughs> nice. that that was the train that kickstarted my relationship with Sweden. Anyway, mm. um, the the other thing to mention about Stockholm subway station is that this is a bit bleaker. Like <laughs> yeah. a lot of places in central Stockholm, they also double as nuclear shelters. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. um, during the Cold War. Sweden had a policy of basically trying to get everyone underground and protected in the event of a nuclear strike because they, Sweden itself wasn't at war with the Soviet Union, so um, there was no danger of them being directly targeted for the most part. But they were worried about invasion and they were worried about knock-on effects from nuclear conflict all around. Um, and if you go to a lot of apartment blocks in um, Sweden, you'll find that in the basements, because everything's built on this really hard rock, they've dug out these uh, these basically fallout bomb shelters. But also the subway stations, not every single one, but some of them actually are designed to double as refuges as well. So in the event of a national emergency, when you need to get, um, you know, 100,000 people underground within 20 minutes, they can do it. Mm. And um, it's it's really I've I've had someone visiting me here a couple of weeks ago and I was showing them around and their face just you know they went ghostly white when I explained this. Yeah. Um, but it was because there was there was like I think you know we've all seen the film Threads uh, where it becomes quite clear the British government don't really care about the survival of the average person. Um, you know here it was the opposite. There was a genuine national plan in place to. Mm save people in the event of a nuclear attack and get them to safety and then allow them to live underground for a couple of weeks at a time. Um, and if you if you go into the Stockholm metro system with that in mind, it changes how you look at it because you're like, okay, well, there's a reason why there's all these big caverns. You know, it's obviously there's train stopping, but you can quite easily see how it could be turned into, um, you know, a hospital or a, um, you know, a food store or whatever you needed it to be. It's interesting. It's like pushing the. So it's really taking that idea that public transport is more than just public transport to the next level. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's and, and, and you know that that echoes somewhat of what the what the underground was in London, but the underground it was retrofitted. Whereas this, in this situation, you know, this is very much part of the brief. Um, yeah. uh, the problem we have in Britain is that we don't build our public. We don't. We aren't allowed to build our public transport to be anything other than slightly less than public transport. Um, yeah. But that's another story. So. The next, we're going to hop to the next uh, image. Um, I am like uh, editing on the fly. Uh, here is here is uh, uh, what should be a familiar view to a lot of people, I think. But um, yeah. so I, I replace. We popped in a picture here. There was a picture in here before, but um, it uh, I, it was a bit pixely, so I, I swapped in. Hopefully, I've still captured what you intended me to. So, tell us about tell us about this this particular so this, this massive is the, bridge. This is the bridge. This is, <laughs> yeah. this is well. This is the bridge. The this bridge, is the Edison. Yeah. And- bridge from uh, Denmark to Sweden, which was, was not uncontroversial when it was built and was really expensive, but has completely revolutionized it because um, it used to be quite difficult to get from Denmark to Sweden. You had to kind of sit on these ferries and they, you know, they sort of chugged across. And Whereas now you can go from city center in Copenhagen to city center in Malmö in 22 minutes on a regional train. Um, and it's just completely changed how people think of southern Sweden, which until until the the uh, 2000s when this bridge opened was considered to be a, a fairly kind of, a bit of a backwater actually it was somewhere you went through on the way to somewhere else uh, Malmö was not considered to be a particularly uh, nice place had a lot of poverty mm. um, and yeah you know it's it's been a massive massive deal but it's also shown I think it created an appetite it's one of the first kind of really successful big 
um, bridges in the world to actually go across a shipping lane. Mm, it, yeah. it completely changed the notion of what was possible. Unfortunately, it also meant that that's why people are suggesting bridges to Northern Ireland because you know they're yeah. like, well, how hard can it be? Yeah. The Hudson is a very is a comparatively narrow, shallow channel. Um, whereas, you know, obviously to sail from Scotland to Northern Ireland, you're sailing across a massive ocean trench, which I think is full of ammunition as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a huge, so, they, they, they are, yeah, we, we did an episode on this and, and I pointed out that yes, crossing water is possible, but, um, this is a different endeavor entirely. Yeah. Um, um and, uh, it was a big project. I mean, so the island you see on the right hand side there, it's completely artificial. Um, it's called Pepper Horn and that was, that was, uh, that was made um out of um spoil which was dug partly from the tunnel and partly imported i think um and you know this project was so big you know it actually changed the flow patterns in and out of the baltic so when they built this bridge and when they when they built the island in particular and there's a tunnel that runs the last bit for the really big ships to pass um the the they actually did some measurements and you know water started behaving differently so that the because the baltic has this very narrow opening there's only really two ways into it one is through the Ödesund, and one is by going around the bottom of, bottom side of the island of Fyn in Denmark, uh, where Odense is. Um, you 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 make small changes, and you really alter um, the way the water goes because everything that's coming in and out of the in and out of the Baltic has to go through this passage. Um, but the bridge has been such a big success; nobody can really imagine undoing it now. And you know, people who were opposed to it originally on cost grounds now pretend that they weren't. Like mm-hmm. yeah. successful. Yeah, um, it's a bit like people who are against the Channel Tunnel. You know, the idea that we wouldn't have the Channel Tunnel now is ridiculous because it is so important to Britain's economy um, and and to our you know people's people have got used to being able to get a train from London to Paris, no questions asked. Very similar vibe here. You know, the idea that someone in Malmo would not be able to go to Copenhagen, you know, to like have a couple of beers with a mate of an evening is just not you know not even thinkable. Yeah, shout out to Alan Job, my friend Al, Alistair Temple, who's in Malmö at, at the moment. Uh, has has been there for years and years, in fact, and I've yet to visit uh, Alistair. I'm sorry, I'm a bad friend. Um, I know Alistair. Ah, yes, you'll yeah. know. Yeah, you'll know him from Twitter yeah. and possibly elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Al Temple. Hello. Um, yeah, uh, but it's yeah, it, very much. This is what's what's funny about this actually is that it's it's shown everyone that Germany has some of the worst high speed rail in Europe because the slow. Yeah. I want to be able to go to Sweden by train. The slowest bit of that is Germany now, um, because actually it's yes. quite quick to get across Sweden. It's quite quick to get across France. Um, yeah. it's not quick to get across Germany. Germany's the slow bit now. There's um, there's a really big missing link, and it's because the the the, the Danish and the, the Danish, the Dutch and the German governments have never got together to build a railway from Hamburg to Amsterdam, right? Yep. So with the with the with the um, the HSL Zud in uh, Netherlands, which I think John Stone has spoken about. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is um, you know there's now basically a high speed railway all the way from London to Amsterdam. You would need to build one to Hamburg, and then soon there's going to be with the the Fairman, um link that they're building between Denmark and Germany. There'll be a there'll be a higher speed railway from Hamburg all the way to Copenhagen. So you know you could feasibly run a train from London to Copenhagen in about I want to say seven hours, six and a half hours if you were fast. It's bliss. Um, you know, assuming that modern high speed trains go at the best part of 170 mile an hour. Um, so, I mean, you're the expert here, Gareth, so feel free to correct me. But No, no, no. That's, um, 
It's it, yeah. that gap, the the, the, the the lack of connectivity from Amsterdam onwards uh, in this direction is a real pain in the backside. Um, mm. uh, and, and it could be fixed. Interesting fact from uh, Gustav. Uh, Gustav says, uh, Pepperholm was not seeded with anything, by the way. All the green has spread there on its own. It's basically a big experiment. That's very interesting. I like that. That's nice. nice. That's this, this, this thing here, this funny-shaped, funky number. Uh, all seeded of its own. That's quite interesting. I like that. It's uh, it's, mm. it's a good fact. Um, yeah. Um, anything else you want to say while we look at this spectacular structure and I get rid of all my scribbles? Um, or shall we continue on our um, on Let's our voyage? Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's do it. Um, oh, crikey, it's 1957. We might run on a little bit. Hopefully, Dominic, that's all right with you. Now, here's another thing. I like okay. this picture. It's just a nice curved bit of track going over a, on a viaduct over a bit of water with some trees in the background, which is a familiar sight. But tell us about this. What is this? This is a uh, Bosnia Bono, which is a, which is uh, the Bosnia Railway, I think it's called in English, and it was a, it was something that had been on the cards for a long time, and I, I mentioned it earlier. Um, what Sweden did was it built a brand new high speed railway up the east coast because transport connections were so bad, um, and it meant that when it opened, it went from taking you know instead of being a fourteen hour journey, it became a six hour journey um, to to get from Stockholm to. Uh, Umeå, which is this, the really actually really lovely city on mm. the northeast coast of Sweden, mm. um, and it, it means there's now like I think like four or five trains a day direct, and it's completely changed the way people conceive of the city. Um, Umeå is is probably I think probably about the same size as somewhere like Dundee. You know, it's not a massive oh, okay. place, yeah, yeah. but it it's it's the, it's the capital of the north. It's the last. Yeah, Dundee's kind of big place. enough to be nice, so I can imagine. You know, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's got potential. Um, but it's the last, the last big place as you go north in Sweden, basically. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a focal point for the rest of northern Sweden as well, and that people will come down from the interior, you know, to like do business. There's a university there. People come to town for a couple of days. You know, it's a really nice place to hang out anyway. Um, and I, I was on this train the other day, um, going up to to do some work there, and I just, it just really struck me that um, it's like, well, we could have this. We we could have one of these run into Inverness if we wanted. Yeah. Yeah. But we've chosen not to. Um, and it really hammers home that, you know, these things are fundamentally political choices, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but why are we spending... We're spending enough to build a high-speed line to Inverness on dueling the A9. It's a thing that people yes, often yeah. say, oh, you know, we can't... Yeah, but you've got to duel... No, no you, you don't have to duel the A9. You don't have to yeah. do that. Not a penny of that need... As soon as the average speed cameras went up, not a penny of it needed spending. And all of that could have been spent on a high-speed line connecting... From Perth up to Inverness, why didn't yeah. why didn't Scotland do that? And it's a deep. And you'll be you'll you'll be a fan of this, Gareth. In that this line, what it's actually done is on the on the much slower, curvier inland line, it's freed up loads of freight paths. Yeah, so of course it has. Yeah, there's now loads of like um, there's now loads of freight trains that can can rumble along at you know um, seventy kilometers an hour inland, um, and you know all the passenger trains are zipping up and down here. So there's been a big debate about whether or not it was worth it to build this line. Um, economically, mm. um, people who live in the area say definitely was. Yeah, yeah it, sure. you know, it hasn't broken even. It hasn't come near to breaking even on its own terms. But if you look at the way it's changed other aspects of the economy, and like I say, basically created a, a double track railway through northern Sweden, albeit spaced a hundred miles apart. Um, you know that that's the real payoff. And yeah. what they also did, which was really cool, is they took the opportunity to completely revolutionise all of the. Uh, trains in northern Sweden at the same time. So oh, nice. you've got um, a company called Nortorg, who are um, the regional railway company, and they run trains all over northern Sweden, including up into the Arctic. 
and they're the brand new trains they've got little coffee stations on really you know staff there they've even got this kind of lounge area where you can just go and hang out if you want to get up from your seat for a bit um they're you know they're really really good and they're subsidized as well um so they're, you know, they're relatively cheap bearing in mind that some of these journeys are three and a half four hours long um and it just goes to show that you know if you've got the political will to basically not abandon a large tract of your country because it's not paying its way you can do these things um but it's um it's it's i think it's easier in a in a climate where people aren't so afraid of like large public projects basically yeah there's just this pathological fear right the way down through the strata of society in the uk about anything that's resembles a major project like this and it's not just yeah. nimbyism it's not just cowardice at the top there's something that really does stretch right the way through our society that prevents us from doing this sort of intervention whether it's a physical intervention or indeed you know a state intervention related to welfare or or, or other things like this mm. you know which is ironic given that we have the nhs which is the single greatest thing the uk ever created yeah uh, you know the, the the best thing we ever did uh, and we seem to be afraid of ever attempting to repeat it for anything else uh, it's, no it's, and when we get to the next slide or one of the other slides i'll talk a bit about bradford because uh, I think there's a nice connection to be made oh, here. Oh, nice. Yeah, do it. Right, so this this nice little picture, we're going to hop to another nice picture, which is of, of freight. We have to talk, I was going to say, we'd have to talk about heavy freight in Sweden, right? Yeah. Uh, for sure. So this is, this is, this is, um, this is the LKAB. So one of the reasons, one of the other reasons that Swedish government is kind of minted is that it owns this massive mining operation in the north of Sweden, which is one of the world's biggest iron mines. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you want to make steel, you've got to buy iron ore and, you know, Sweden sells it. So there is this huge industrial operation that runs from uh, Kiruna in northern Sweden over the border into Norway where there's a big port. And these trains go back and forward 24-7 carrying the iron ore. Um, if you look carefully, you can see the, the wagons are actually specially strengthened. Um, they've got three wheels, uh, three axles to wagon um, because the, the ore is so heavy. Um, yeah. So oh yeah, they are, are they are they on articulated bogies actually? Yeah, are they uh, they look like it. Some of them are. They they keep changing, but they've yeah, got very yeah. high very high axle loads. Mm. Um, and the, the, these these uh, trains these sorry these trains. Um, I'm on a railway podcast. I need to be more specific. <laughs> these locomotives um, are they're are, insanely they powerful. Built, yeah, when they were built, they were the most powerful in the world. Um, because you know this is not couple back to back; these are the same locomotives. Yeah. They run as a pair. Um, but as you can see, there's there's two pantographs up, so you know they're drawing a lot of power as well. Um, this whole um, this whole um, railway has been really heavily upgraded to to have really to have really really durable uh, electrical systems as well, because they are drawing so much power. Um, but these these things roll around the clock, and it's the kind of secret of the one of the secrets of the Swedish economy is that. You know, they've just been keeping the world in um, steel um, for years and years and years. Um, but this thing is this kind of you go to northern Sweden, it's like a state within the state in that a lot of people work for this company. So they either work in the mine or they work on the railway and the, the, the company runs its own trains. This isn't the national rail company. Mm, this is the yeah. mine operator. Um, but it's like. It's a bit of a difficult thing because in some ways, you know, mining is really um, destructive and, you know, there's big environmental problems as well. But at the same time, the amount of money it creates pays for northern Sweden to have public services, hospitals, you know, passenger trains. All of the other stuff that goes on is dependent on this sort of super system. Um, 
And it's a really nice, I actually wrote about it in my book, actually. I was up there um, and went down the mine, went down the mine and spoke to some of the local people and um, didn't go, didn't, didn't speak to the train guys of that, but, you know, about the importance of this. Um, and it feels a bit like it's kind of gone from the UK now, but how, you know, in the UK, there used to be sections of the country where there were, everyone did work in the same factory and everyone was reliant on one industry. Mm. And there were just these huge, you know, rail yards with trains departing once an hour, carrying whatever they were carrying. Um, so it's a bit of a throwback actually, but the, this mine is, um, it's got an interesting story attached to it because it was, um, the ore is so valuable that they decided to carry on digging the seam. The problem is the seam goes under the town. So they decided to oh, sacrifice yes. the city of Kiruna yeah. um, for the sake of mining. Because the mine makes them so much money, they could afford to pay for the whole city to be moved. So what they've done is they've got a brand new city um, about four or five miles down the road which on some safer ground. And over the next, like, 30 years, the current city is basically going to fall into a chasm. Yeah. Um, you know, I wish, I wish that would happen to lots of cities, actually. But the current city is going to fall into a chasm in the ground um, as the earth underneath it is is um, undermined. If you go to a... There's another city in northern Sweden called Malmberget, which is next to uh, Jelivare, another one of these big mining towns. And there's large parts of the city's there, city there that just fenced off and there's these massive sinkholes because they've, they've dug too much. Mm. Um, so you do see the, you do really see the danger of what happens as well. But, um, this is, um, this sort of super system that runs all the way across Northern Sweden is, um, kind of amazing to see. And you can get a passenger train here as well. So, um, if you get the sleeper train up from Stockholm to, uh, Norway, you'll go on the same line and you really see it for what it is, which is, is, you know, you're so far North, it's hard to believe. And up here, there's this whole uh, mega system of trains going backwards and forwards around the clock. It's, it is amazing. I'm, I'm actually glad we have Gordon Jilks, who is the, exactly the person to speak to about this very subject. Because, um, firstly, as you as you intimated, the, the freight trains, and as Gordon has said, absolutely batter the OLE. But my belief, uh, and both you and Gordon can correct me on this, is that these... Uh, these trains, they go loaded down, they, they spend a lot of time going downhill fully loaded yeah. um, and they generate enough electricity it's almost like a perpetual motion machine because if you just ignore the fact that there is a load of energy pulling the ore out at the top of the hill yeah. but they generate more than enough electricity to get the train back up the hill again and yeah. and put en- energy into the grid Gordon, can you fact check that? But I believe that's correct. I don't know if that r- r- rings true for you, Dominic. I, I believe, that's I believe it's true in the sense that um, there's definitely a um, there's definitely not a huge drop off because because the the the, the and you, if you get the train, you'll see this. Like the especially once you get over the border into Norway, there's a bit of a climb up to the border, but it's a huge drop down um, mm. to sea level from what's basically the top of a fjord. Yeah. And you know the amount of energy which you would through regenerative braking be putting back into a into the wires is is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, the other thing to say is that because the north of Sweden has so much hydroelectric power, and mm, um, these things yeah. are carbon neutral, so the energy that's going into the railways is all coming from hydropower, um, and that so one of the reasons why Sweden has been able to decarbonize so quickly because it had um, really really generous provision of electric power um, from a very early stage, and so you know electric cars are taking off here in a big way because. Electricity is freely available. Um, also, because the government haven't haven't fucked up the provision of charges in the way they have at home. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say they've um, actually invested in the distribution network, which is something that the UK government just refuses to bother with. Um, yeah. Again, Gordon, um, that's in your camp there, Gordon. Yeah, but the the, um, the 
the the I mean again like these you know this is a really high tech thing and because of the way this company is run because it's a nationalized company they 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 have a they have a um responsibilities to deliver profits to the government essentially mm. but they're also you know everybody's very well taken care of it's like corporate socialism actually um you know wages are very high um you know everyone everyone gets good holidays but they also they spend so much money in the local community as well so um you know a lot of the infrastructure spending that happens locally is paid for by this company and not mm. by the government because they've got the cash and there is this kind of sense of well you know we should reinvest if you compare that to the the big ding dong at the moment in Scotland about the aluminium smelter in Fort William, um, you know, which is about to be asset stripped and then given to the government at a loss, I think. Yeah. Um, the you know you see it, it's um, it's night and day, and it's entirely because you know I think if a private company tried to behave the way that some of the British companies have done in terms of their social responsibility, they'd be laughed out of town. It's it's. Yeah, uh, the, the the difference is, yeah, and it's not like they're squeaky clean, you know. That as you say, uh, ore mining is not a is not a hugely sustainable activity. It's uh, certainly not a, you know, it's it, it's environmentally destructive, you know. Uh, but there is an attempt to offset that. There's an attempt to ameliorate that. Um, yeah, as you know, your book explores you know explores some of that discussion. Uh, I'm sure there's 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 huge amounts been written on that discussion, but you can see that that, that corporate socialism is it's an interesting con it's an interesting concept to explore. Um, to what extent there's a corporate you know to what extent that is just really that because it's an extension of the state or actually because there is a level of, of corporate interest there. Yeah, there, there's some mm. interesting themes I think to explore in there, but also a stunning bit of railway infrastructure <laughs> to be yeah worth a visit and it also. Awesome. Surprisingly cheap, given how far away it is, surprisingly cheap to get up there. So, worth the trip. Absolutely, yeah. I'm just form Dean and I have been formulating in our in our heads how we're going to do a, a Scandi trip, and I think we might just confine ourselves to, to to Sweden or maybe including Copenhagen actually, um, and just do a bit of this, do a bit of exploration right up to the to the Arctic and get stuck in. The furthest north I've been is Bergen. Uh, I can definitely exceed that. So, uh, yeah, uh, in Norway. So uh, yeah, I can do more. Um, right. There is a map. Yeah. Everyone, there's a map, which is exciting. This is, um, I was going to say, this is the Bradford of the North, but Bradford is the Bradford of the North. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, that's it. Yeah, yeah. This, is a, this, is a, this is a picture of Gothenburg. And mm. um, I stuck this in because um, I wrote, to cut a long story short, I wrote my PhD about, it was a media PhD, but I wrote about infrastructure politics in Sweden mm. um, and inf infrastructure and environment and like big developmental challenges and how they were portrayed in the press. Um but this is a this is a project which is a, just about to to really get off the ground in Gothenburg, and given all of the all of the discussion about why they can't build a railway from Manchester to Leeds through Bradford and give Bradford a new station, the Gothenburg, which is big but not that big, I think I think Gothenburg city itself is about eight hundred thousand people. Mm. Um, it's got um, they're building they're building this massive underground railway through the middle of Gothenburg, and it's costing loads of money, and building three new stations as well. And this has been on the drawing board for years. Um, and, it, you know, it's not been uncontroversial. But um, when I read reports in the UK press about how this stuff can't be done because it's just not it's just not feasible, like, you've got to ask yourself, well, actually, you know, what it is feasible uh, because other countries are doing it with far smaller economies of scale, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, Gothenburg, is, it's a bit bigger than Edinburgh, but, like, not much bigger. Um but, you know, the government and the regional government basically decided that this is something that needed to happen because 
the railway station was so congested. Um, and because the um, Gothenburg's like quite an old-fashioned station where you have to go in and reverse out again. Yeah, it's a terminal. Um, Funny that, everyone. Look, it's a terminal station that is being yeah. turned into a through station. Hmm. Manchester. Yeah. yeah. Um, what the Germans call the Kopfbahnhof. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, um, it's, you know, and Gothenburg station is lovely, really beautiful building, but it's not fit for purpose. And um, they've done a similar thing in Malmö where they've turned a, a terminal station into a yep. through station. And in Stockholm, although Stockholm was never a terminal station, it had, um, Stockholm Central had a real bottleneck at one end where there's a bridge across one of the one of the lakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they've just built an underground uh, kind of crossrail style station there as well. Um, so very soon, all three of Sweden's biggest cities will have one of these in, whilst the UK, you know, doesn't really have one outside of London. And this is, you know, when you bear in mind the UK, I think is still, despite Brexit, like the eighth, ninth biggest economy in the world. It's just um, embarrassing. I pointed this out in the select committee. I was like, you know, other countries are making decisions that it's worth investing in public transport infrastructure in their cities. Why Why are we not? There's no response. It's just a lack no. of imagination, a lack of ambition for the country. It's just because yeah. basically politicians of all colours and stripes, unfortunately, just don't think it's worth investing in the country. It's, it, that, it's, it's, it's just as simple as that. Lack of imagination and... Uh, yeah, it's 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 depressing. But it you know it's it's the more examples we can throw, you just got to basically embarrass. The only way to get the government to do anything is to embarrass them enough to get them to do anything. Mm. Um, and they're very but difficult also, people to embarrass, frankly. And also, I think that if you go to Malmo, especially, you really see the difference it's made because, like I say, Malmo used to be quite run down, mm. um, and there's bits of the city now which weren't up to much. Where now there's um, like you know these new uh, regional stations where you can get on a train. Not not to really far away places, but either to Copenhagen or to um, one of the kind of other nearby cities. And so it suddenly meant that, you know, people want to live in these places. They want to go out there. You know, they want to spend their money there. Um, and Manla, I mean, in my lifetime, I went to Manla for the first time in about 2003, maybe 2002. And I thought it was crap um, <laughs> because it was it was really boring. It was kind of run down. There was nothing going on. And now it's like it's probably the hippest place to live in Sweden. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, and it's people want to live there. All the cool kids yeah. live there. Uh, Al's girlfriend yeah. is very, very cool. She she would not move to Malmo if it was not a cool place. She's, no, she goes I'm, to I'm, drum and bass gigs and stuff, you know. I'm moving to Malmo on Monday, so I'm oh, hoping really? it's going to brush off on me. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, this is my last couple of days in, in, in Stockholm for the time being. So um, it's, 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 it's nice to see how much it has changed and how much – Kind of some of the the cosmopolitan vibes of Copenhagen have brushed off on uh, Malmo as well, um, but I think I think really the thing to understand about something like the Gothenburg project is that you know it's it's not been easy. It's it's costing mm. a ton of money, but you know these things pay for themselves in various ways, and also the social the social benefits of this will be huge. Absolutely, um, and you know that's just something you don't see in the UK. I mean, like I've lived in Edinburgh on and off since about two thousand and six, so um, you know. Edinburgh is a city that is bursting at the seams, has absolutely terrible infrastructure. And every time someone suggests building something else, everyone's like, oh, we can't do that. And look, we've already built a tram line. Isn't that enough? Um, and it's not enough. So it's it's really, um, I think, important to emphasize that, you know, this stuff is difficult. It's not, I think some people play kind of fantasy travel planner, you know, and they get a map out and they start drawing lines on it. This stuff takes years and years of planning and skill. But they do it because it pays off. And, you know, as you'll point out again and again on Twitter, Gareth, 
every new railway line you build frees up capacity elsewhere. So um, Gothenburg is also one of um, one of Scandinavia's biggest container ports. Yep. And so this is also going to free up space for container trains to get to the harbour as well. So there's loads and loads of benefits there. Absolutely. It's got to, got to see the bigger picture. Um, oh, so much so. Yeah, right. Uh, there is another we have we have so we have this picture here with a variety of things going tell us what so we've got an x2000 we've got some um some what, what look like some quite nice uh big suburban trains maybe yeah. or are they maybe regional trains these uh, are inter, i think these are in city trains oh um, okay okay these correct. these are mtr trains so um, oh crikey sweden, yeah they are sweden yeah, sweden yeah. deregulated oh god yeah sweden deregulated that. its railways in the early 90s um well, I'll go back. In the early 1990s, Sweden had a massive economic crisis based on a, a couple of things to do with the value of the currency and the regulation of the property market and everything else. Um, and it elected a right-wing government for the first time in quite a long time. And that government pushed through a number of reforms, one of which was um, deregulation of privatization of the railways. Um, now, it's a bit simplistic to say it was just then because there'd been some rumors about it beforehand. But anyway, yeah. um, it was... One of the th effects of that is that for a long time, nothing really happened. There was some kind of attempts at private operators and then, you know, no one was really ready. But as the rest of Europe has come on board, what we've seen in Sweden now is more and more of these private operators. So um, MTR, um, they run like an express train service from Gothenburg to Stockholm, which is a bit like the Lumo train from Edinburgh to London now. OK, yeah. MTR, um, by the way, is the Hong Kong uh, metro operator for anyone who's yeah. not familiar with that they run crossrail um and they also they also run the stockholm metro at the moment mm, um interesting. Yeah. but they um you know and th th this has been pretty positively received but um there's a big there's a big debate in sweden um, about whether or not you know this stuff actually helps because at the end of the day it's sj that end up picking up the tab for a yeah. lot of the non-profitable stuff through the government as well Whereas the private operators complain that SJ, you know, have an unfair market monopoly and that they can't um, compete with them. Um, and it, sw it swings and roundabouts. It's like the old arguments between, you know, national airlines and, and low cost airlines on the same routes. Um, but because there's such a high demand for train travel in Sweden at the moment, it does kind of um, does kind of uh, help a little bit in terms of providing stuff. And Sweden at the moment has a massive rolling stock shortage. So um, there, there is. Unlike the UK, where you have um, Roscoe's, so Rolling yep. Stock Operating Company. Uh, is that what the, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's Roscoe's. right, Roscoe's, yeah. yeah. Um, the, um, in Sweden, actually, a lot of the trains are owned by SJ anyway. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So if you want spare coaches, you have to go and ask SJ to give you some of their spare coaches and rent them. And although they can be forced to rent them to you, you know, they've still got a bit of a monopoly on that. So at the moment, because there's such a lack of trains available you've got all these weird situations where um stuff that's been in cold storage for 10 years is being kind of hauled out and refurbished and put back into into frontline service um but the reason that can happen as well and you'll like this is that sweden has like a lot still has a lot of old-fashioned engine and coaches trains yeah so yeah. you know Lots of local um the the what they call the rc locomotives which are the kind of workhorses of, of swedish railways you see them everywhere and they're actually the same as the ones you get in um former yugoslavia the orange ones you get there oh yeah um the um you know they were built i think in the 60s and 70s by asia and they're still going today in all kinds of places so sometimes you'll go to the railway station and your train will turn up and it'll be uh one of these like 1960s electric engines with like four kind of fairly rickety coaches on the back um <laughs> which i personally enjoy but 
not everyone maybe does. not the future yeah. but it's an enjoyable experience for the nerds yeah yeah um and um you know it's because for a long time the government didn't very effectively plan what was going on and just kind of assumed that the semi-autonomous rail company and these private actors would take care of it themselves sweden's actually had a bit of a crisis because although they've had some really big new projects the general level of maintenance and investment in the wider network hasn't been as high as it should be so there's loads of issues at the moment you pointed out earlier on about some of that lovely antiquated um uh, overhead line equipment yeah that 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 you know that's more numerous than it should be i put it that way yeah um and they're now playing catch-up so the swedish government the swedish parliament just passed a massive railway investment package which is partly designed to deal with this um and it, it's because you know that for a while they played with the idea that railways should basically pay for themselves or that they didn't need big direction and they've learned their lesson but it's, it's going to take a few years to catch up again it's a lesson that the uk refuses oh, sorry i'll correct that it's a lesson that westminster refuses to learn about the gb rail network um, yeah yeah uh, different in northern ireland of course right so conscious of time uh the last image tell us yes. about this 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 is amazing and i'm sorry if you wouldn't know this story but i find it so funny so this is how not to do scandinavian railways i suppose um <laughs> A long time ago now, like 20 years ago it must have been, the Danish government basically decided that Denmark built all these new bridges. And so for the first time ever, it was possible to take a train all the way from one bit of Denmark to the other without going on a ferry. And so the Danish government were like, okay, well, now we can do this. We should probably speed up the connections a little bit more because people are going to need to fly less. They don't have to take the boat. So they commissioned these um, very expensive, brand-new Italian high-speed trains. Uh-oh. Yep. Exactly. You've got. Oh, I know this story. Yeah. Um, and they arrived, and to, to to cut a long story short, they just didn't work. Like they kind of worked, but they didn't really couple up together. The doors kept not opening properly. They kept just randomly turning off for no reason. Um, and they tried and tried and tried to um, to deal with them, and eventually, I think they actually got sold them to somewhere else completely. This. This train, as you can probably tell, is not in Denmark. No. This train is in Libya. What happened was the Danish uh, government had ordered these trains and the first train was supposed to arrive and it didn't arrive and it didn't arrive. And the Danish government or the Danish railways were, were a bit confused by this and they kept asking, um, I think they're built by Ansaldo. Yeah. Um, but they, um, Which is now Hitachi. Asking, so that's the Italian yeah. builder in the north of Italy, right? Uh, yeah. And Saldo Breda, who is now Hitachi something, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think. And they were like, where's the train? Where's the train? And the Italians are like, oh, it's coming, it's coming. Turned out what had happened was that um, Silvio Berlusconi had given it to Colonel Gaddafi as a gift. Um, <laughs> and it had, it had been taken to Libya at the behest of the Italian government and gifted to the Libyan government. And they had built this railway for it. Um, with without any um, without any any connection, so they basically on on paper it was supposed to be the first section of Libya's own domestic high speed network. Mm. Um, and I think at that time it's because then um, Morocco was going to build one, and so Gaddafi was very keen that Libya should also have something. Um, and then during the during this train went missing, and then during the Libyan civil war, which is a fair few years ago now, it started, but. Um, a very intrepid team of Danish uh, foreign correspondents went to Libya and tracked this train down, and <laughs> abandoned, abandoned, parked. 
um, which was kind of, you know, a fairly um, good symbol of the complete failure of the whole project. What Denmark's now done is it's decided to electrify its railways um, for the most part and has ordered a fleet of new electric trains from um, a very safe, I think they're from Germany, I think they're the Bombardier ones maybe. Um, but um, this is um, this is kind of the flip side of it, which is that Scandinavians don't always do things well. And it's a bit of a myth sometimes that they do. There's some, been some catastrophic failures of, uh, of um, political and industrial strategy in the Nordic countries, and so you know, the, it's, it's a kind of question of how much even out, but I mean, even out with the good stuff. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. One of the things that is really is really apparent is if you go to Denmark today, especially in rural Denmark, the trains are really really slow, and um, they're very pleasant. But you know, it's like being in rural Wales; you're not going to get anywhere very fast. Um, you just have to enjoy the ride, and this is why it's because twenty years of supposed plans went down the drain. <laughs> Oh, a big whoops. That is a that is indeed a big whoops. Um and now lastly, there yes. is this map here. Another fine map here with Malmö, uh, Lund, uh Hesloholm. I, I can't do Swedish pronunciation actually, I have to take That's over. That's pretty from good. Me. Hesla sorry. Hesloholm. Hesloholm. Uh, yeah, I, I can't I can't I can't switch from one language to the other when I'm in the middle of a sentence. I have to go into Swedish mode. Um, it, it's weird. It's because Swedish Swedish sits very differently on the tongue. So is is Gothenburg actually Göteborg? Is that Göteborg? Göteborg. Oh, because the G is a Y. Yeah. Of course, Göteborg. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Right. So they, it becomes like an old J set, old Y sound. Um, yeah, Göteborg. Yeah. Um, and apologies to any Swedes who are tuning in because I've only been back in Sweden for a month and so I'm still adjusting. Um, Don't blame it on me. It's fine. Yeah. Exactly. Um, this is this is a map of uh, Sweden's. Uh, high-speed network as it's probably going to be so the final the final kind of design work on this is uh or the prelim work is is going on at the moment with a view to um putting it before parliament to make a decision on funding but the idea is that eventually um there will be a kind of actual high-speed network running all the way from stockholm to the major cities um which will put um stockholm and malma less than three hours from each other which will be revelation yeah big time yeah um, um, this will make a huge difference in Sweden. This is this will be country changing, I think. Yeah, genuinely, it will, it will be. be. And I think people don't people don't quite realise that because Swedes are very territorial, so they're actually, they're quite used to not having a lot to do with each other. Um, <laughs> and what I really notice is that you know my Stockholm friends don't really have any mates in Gothenburg or even that many family connections, and vice versa. Um, so a lot of people do move around. Of course, they move around, but there isn't. There isn't the same level of um, a level of interaction between the east and the west coast you might expect. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I've got a very good friend from Malmo who has has never been to Stockholm because <laughs> she uh, she, she yeah. uh, left the country when she was uh, eighteen to go to uni in uh, in the UK and um, just goes home to visit her parents and has never been to the capital. So, <laughs> you know, it tells you a lot about the way Sweden works. But also, the bit of Sweden we're looking at here is tiny. This is a quarter of the country. Yeah, you know. There's a lot more, like a lot more yeah. that way. So, but this is kind of, if you like, this is kind of the urban end of the. Yeah, this, of, I mean, the, this is this is. This and is the reality, the, this know. also brings everyone up this end closer to all the other places as well. Anyway, through through merit of the connections here, it does bring yeah. it does bring the whole country together. Um, uh, oh, hopefully, I mean, in 15, in fifteen years' time as well, hopefully you'll be able to get a direct Stockholm to Hamburg train, for example. Oh, um, nice. Or you'll be able to get a Stockholm to London sleeper train, you know. So. Yeah. Um, 
provided climate change doesn't get that bad, um, we'll um, we'll actually hopefully have something to look forward to. It's it's a it's a beautiful thing. Imagine that building a coherent high speed network between your major cities. But this is this is the thing. It brings us back to you know this this eco modernist dream. Like you know this is what we've got to fight for. Absolutely. Um, and I think that if you one of the problems is that I mean I don't need to tell anybody on this podcast, but you know make it making transit sexy, making it the future in the way it was, um, is really important because you know as soon as as soon as flights and we've seen it already actually culturally, as soon as fossil fuels become anachronistic, you know there's a huge shift in mentality there yeah. in terms of okay well what's the cool thing to do, what's the what's the attractive option and you see that, um, you know railways can do that and I think that you see it with high-speed rail like you, you it sounds really it sounds really wanky but like there's a there's a real kind of um phenomenological experience there in terms of like your contact with an idea of what's happening and like what what the experience of of, of um the future is when you take you know the eurostar to amsterdam or you take uh you know one of the new high-speed railways in china or japan um and that speaks to people in a way they don't always even realise, I think. Absolutely. And I think that, that accounts for some of the nervousness about high-speed rail in the UK because it, it, I think there is a reluctance among quite a lot of Conservative MPs to... It's not a grand conspiracy, but there is a natural reluctance over giving people a glimpse of what a major piece of, of, of state investment can do for people's livelihoods. That, that undermines a lot of ideology. Um, yeah, I think it really does, um, and you can see you can see it as well in the way that the UK government has really bought into all the um, bought into all of the kind of gump about driverless electric cars and stuff, and the yeah. idea that they basically mean we don't need to change anything else because these things will essentially, you know, can be marketized and will solve themselves. And um, we've been told they're going to be having driverless electric cars for ten years now, and they've not arrived. Been been getting told it for about eighty years actually, uh, and they've still not arrived. So yeah, absolutely, it's a uh... Yeah, and it was a point I was about to make actually, which is that we have we're at a bit of a tipping point in certainly in in the UK and the US. The US is already far gone to be honest on this, but the UK that tipping point of um, in a way uh, it's a tipping point not towards uh, you know EVs and an, an entirely car dominated future, but it's it's I, we're at a potential tipping point away from that being the inevitable future, and there's a lot of pushback yeah. on that. Um, and countries like Sweden show us the way it could be if we didn't have a and don't get me wrong there are a lot you know, Sweden has a lot of cars it's a lot of car you know lots of busy highways lots of car problems it's not perfect but it shows what that tipping point of, of what the future can look and feel and smell and and, and just the yeah. sensation of it rail offers that and, and and everyone on this podcast most people on the podcast uh probably get that but it's a case of how we sell that and how and, and I think using countries like Sweden where it is working you know, better, maybe not perfect, but better is the way that we can we can make that pitch. Um, Dominic, that that is that's been great. Uh, thanks so much for that. In fact, going to go to our, our big faces. Um, I will do. The, in fact, I tell you what, I'll, we'll come back to you. I'll do the end. I'll do the end bit, and then and then we will. Um, and then and then we'll come back to Dominic. If you've got questions for Dominic, line them up now. We've got. I'm two minutes. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, where is he? I know he was on the call. Uh, he's David Frankel. I, I know I've, I said half eight, but you're watching this, so you know that I'll be joining you a little bit after half eight. It's fine. Um, right. 
Uh, audio only. This exists in audio only form. Hopefully we've done a reasonable job of audio describing. Rarely, I'm going to say I think this one will work quite well in audio only format. I know we've had pictures up, but actually I think this has been quite a nice discursive sort of um, chatty episode. I've really enjoyed it. Don't, it's exactly as good as I hoped it would be. Um, Patreon.com slash Gareth Dennis um, for, for, to support this and make more of it happen and get goodies. PayPal.me slash Gareth Dennis for uh, chucking loose change and abuse at me and GarethDennis.co.uk slash Discord for... Um, for more of the YouTube chat that's been going on in the corner. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, and uh, I, the plug for Dominic is a utopia like any other inside the Swedish model. Dominic, tell us about the book uh, briefly, and then also go find him on Twitter, everyone, by the way, as well. Um, uh, the book, the, yeah. Um, the book was, it seems like a distant memory note, actually, but um, I wrote it um, I wrote it uh, off the back of my PhD, and it combined some stuff from my PhD, some sort of historical research, and uh sort of a little bit more sort of geekery i guess around around modernism and and the welfare state and all the rest of it with some on the ground uh journalism i've been doing as mm. a foreign reporter um and it was really fun to write but it was you know what that book's only um i think about six years old now actually came out in 2000 and yeah it came out in 2016 um and some of it's still true but some of it's actually changed again so um I'm, I'm trying to get a publisher interested in doing in a follow-up in some kind um off the back of, of my time here now um because i think that if you're interested in modernization and and society like it's a swede's a lab sweden's a lab basically for yeah. that yeah um yeah. and you know i don't i know i was a bit critical earlier about like some of the utopianism of sweden but actually um if you want to imagine what a kind of sustainable uh you know modern socially progressive society looks like it's somewhere like this you get the best glimpses into that you know you see for those kind of fleeting moments what is possible um and you know there is a kind of slightly utopian edge to it so um yeah i mean i think the book actually um the publisher keeps printing small runs uh, of kind of four or five hundred copies at a time so occasionally i get a check in the post so someone's buying it but um you can buy it on amazon um i know for as an ebook for quite cheap it's like three and a half four quid or now something so um i recommend doing that or if you order it for a library um i know it's available in lots as well um yeah yeah go buy the book everyone and uh this wasn't a book plug episode uh, episode by the way everyone in the chat it just happens to i, I like you know it's an inch it's a, it's it's a good book it's worth picking up and uh and having a flick through for for all the stuff we've kind of discussed also dominic at dominic m hind uh with an e is the uh is is Dominic's uh, Twitter handle, so you can go and go and grab that. People have asked in the chat. Um, uh, yes. So, oh, also, th- right. Okay. So the next week's episode of Rail Natter is a fun one because it's episode 125. We're gonna do another. <laughs> um, we're gonna do another alternative history episode, which is um, what if the Intercity 125 had never existed, which I think will be quite fun. So give, hopefully I'll have enough time to pull a decent episode together. Uh, but actually, the APT one I pulled together fairly quickly, and it ended up being a, even though it was quite early on, I think it one of my favourite uh, episodes. So that's next week, episode 125. Good grief, we've done a lot of these. Uh, the 126th episode of Rail Now, weirdly. Um, oh, let's right, let's let's go big face again. Dominic, uh, that has been really great. Lots of messages in the chat saying they really enjoyed that. I enjoyed it. It was a really interesting chat. Really great. It's exactly as good as I hoped it would be. Um, anyone, any any questions I missed? If you've got a question at at my name and then it'll appear really uh, clearly. Uh, Gustav uh, is saying, being critical about the utopianism here in Sweden is valid. Totally valid. Uh, yeah, fair, fair, fair comment. Uh, lots of people saying great episode. Thanks, everyone. Um, note, the rail connections to Oslo from Sweden are crap. Yep, that's a fair comment, Gustav. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, yeah. Oh, no. We've we've covered everyone's thoughts. We've we've captured it. No questions remain. Everyone's very happy uh, uh, after that, which is good because I'll let you go. Um, uh, have your evening back because it's even later where you are than it is here. Um, it is. Dominic, that's been grand. Thanks so much for that. An absolute pleasure. Um, you take good care of yourself, everyone. Uh, oh, so, yeah. I forgot to tell you. I always forget to tell. You. Hang hang about because I'll chat to you after that. But when the credits roll, uh, no one can hear us having our conversation. They are a, a little peek under the bonnet, everyone. Anyway, right. From 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 Dominic and from me. Uh, that's a uh, that's a cheerio, folks. Cheerio, cheerio.